0: You're listening to the premier podcast network.
1: Hey friends, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to tell you about my friends out at the 10th ward barbershop in downtown Pittsburgh, Proudly serving the historic 10th Ward in Lawrenceville and the surrounding areas. 10th Ward Barbershop is a full service barbershop offering quality haircuts, beard trims, and hot shaves. I can attest to this personally. I went down there to see my buddy Kane today. He shaped me up oh so nicely. Gave me a laser beam part in the top of my head. I look fantastic. And he didn't take a ton of time to. He is literally the best that I've ever gone to. Trust me when I tell you that. But you also don't have to take my word for it as much as I want you to. WWE superstars like Bray Wyatt and Corey Graves have all stopped in to see Kane at his barbershop and they will tell you the exact same thing. Now, right now, as much as they like having walk-ins during COVID time, they're only accepting appointments. So the best way for you to get in to see Kane or any of the other fantastic staff at their shop is to go right onto their website at 10thwardbarbershop.com and sign up for an appointment. That's 10th one zero T H You can find them down here in downtown Pittsburgh, stop in and see Kane and tell him that Goober sent you. Peace and good morning, world. Welcome to Foundation Radio. My name is Adam Bernard, and I'm so happy that you're here with me this morning. Today, I'm joined by my guest and dear friend, Adam Samuels. Adam's been working inside of the music industry and the entertainment industry for the better part of a decade. And recently, he had a revelation that what's affecting artists and creators the most is what he calls the disruptive nature of technology and product innovation. And just like the world is changing with COVID, so were Adam's plans on how he was going to assist artists and creators achieve these goals and stay ahead of the curve. And I was fascinated and intrigued not just by this brand new avenue he was paving for himself, but also because of his self-inflicted course correction after a super successful talent management career. I'm really excited to share his story with you today. So friends, let's welcome Adam Samuels to the podcast. dude hey what's going on man not
2: too much what's going on
1: with you another exciting day here in pittsburgh man i can't complain (laughs) (laughs) exciting times man exciting times how's uh you're you're in new york right yeah yeah i'm in brooklyn oh nice nice you've been up there for a while right
2: uh yeah um well, I I moved to New York in 2003. Holy shit. And I probably moved to Brooklyn in 2006 and and you know, did some traveling but mostly been here. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty weird. Um, yeah. I kind of want to leave. <laughs> I also kind of <laughs> love it here. Like the the old school areas of Brooklyn where where like families used to live and still live are just like nice. Like straight up nice and you know, everyone kind of lives together and it's like a little less like that feeling of like, there's like these uber nice apartments and then there's like kind of like a more rundown area that's like not really being taken care of by the city. There's less of that in places like around Park Slope or like Brooklyn Heights, um, where like families have kind of lived in Brooklyn forever. And, you know, where I am in Williamsburg is a great example. Like when I moved to New York, there was, like, like this is basically where, like, bodies got tossed.
0: <laughs> like, Jesus as Christ. Far as,
2: I, as far as I understand. Now, I wasn't doing any tossing, you know. Obviously. Well, hey, look, if you were, like, listen, I'll cut it out of the show. It's On fine. right? <laughs> I'm not doing any tossing. But, uh, yeah, so, but this area was, like, very industrial. There was, like, a lot of factories here. There was one bar called Cokies, which is, like, where people got drugs and, like, found hookers and stuff. Um, and maybe like buried hookers also like, I don't, you know, it was like super <laughs> run down and, you know, people mo- like there was a, there was a, a community of like Orthodox Jews and uh, Dominicans and Puerto Ricans, but like they were amongst this like industrial part of the town and then just like became hipster central. Everyone moved in the industrial buildings got converted into lofts and then those got knocked down and converted into like these high rises so the neighborhood is like has this weird feeling about it and it's actually one of the reasons that i don't like it here because that feeling just like exists and i'm sort of part of like that gentrification and it's a weird feeling With
1: the gentrification, I mean, that has to feel like – because I feel like you kind of got up there early, right? We graduated high school in 2003, so that probably would have been like right before really that push came, like way before – I feel like Brooklyn was like the nexus of that sort of gentrification movement in a lot of ways, right? Because now you're seeing it in Philadelphia, like uh, Fishtown – I'm sure you've been in Philly recently, but like Fishtown and Northern Liberties and now Old Kensington, which to me is like – you know, because that's Don't where you went there. and got, yeah, you went and got drugs. That's what, what our parents <laughs> yeah. told us. Don't go to Kensington. And now yep. everybody is living down there. So it must be a very yep. weird feeling for you to be sort of at the beginning of it and now ready to be like, yeah, fuck it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm
2: ready to go. <laughs> like, I think it's just one a of weird the, thing. I think one of the things that I, like one of the things that, one of the ideas that made me really love living in cities in general was this idea that like the city is, like a living organism that is constantly like being born and dying and like different, it's just growing. And like parts of it are, are going to be like thriving and parts of it are going to be kind of like being destroyed at the same time. And so like from a 10,000 foot view, there's something kind of beautiful about that in this particular moment, you know, it's like Williamsburg is this super fancy area amongst a lot of poverty, and there are a lot of areas like that in New York. But I think, in general, as a concept, I think that's such a, such like an interesting thing about New York because it's constantly changing. And I think, you know, part of that is sort of like a class struggle and a pot and a poverty thing, and that is certainly problematic. And like I couldn't tell you how to like solve those problems, but I think what's like beautiful about the city is that there is this change and that it goes through these like sort of phases. And I think there are white people who like move to, will you know, move to areas like Williamsburg and, you know, they move here in like 2011 and by 2015, they're like, Oh, my favorite bar closed where I got pickleback shots. Like this place really changed. And like, There's, like, a Dominican family that's been here for 60 years who are like, yeah, it totally changed. Like, don't be an (laughs) asshole. Right. (laughs) And realize that, like, it's been changing since before you, the gentrifier's gotten here. So, you know, like, to answer your question, it's like, I've definitely seen a lot of change, but you kind of have to take it in stride because you're also part of change. And, you know, I was... From a certain perspective, I was here early, but I also, when I got here, I still felt safe to live here somewhat. Um, it, And there were certainly people that, you know, like white, you know, white kids that like moved here, artists in particular moved here before I did when it was like even cheaper. And now it's not cheap. You know, it's like certainly not cheap. It's like one of the most expensive cities, I think, in the country or something like that. So, but it was the reason I moved here in part was like, I love the city and I think I prefer Manhattan. Like if I could live anywhere, it'd be like in Chinatown. Like I want to live like right downtown Manhattan Mm because like that to me is really exciting. And I, w- I moved to Williamsburg just because of the proximity and I could find a cheaper place that was a little bit more spacious than a, a small apartment in the Lower East Side. So, you know, ultimately that's what I decided to do. And like, it ended up being a really cool neighborhood, but, you know, like I have my like beef with it too. Like it's right. it's cool, but it's very convenient. There's great stuff around, but it's like filled with people that are like, just like me. And what I love about the city is that uh, in certain neighborhoods it is super diverse and it's like everyone is crammed together in like a small block. So you'd be, you know, it's like, it's unfamiliar and maybe it's a little scary and it's exciting. And it's like, not necessarily these like pure good emotions. It's mm-hmm. like sometimes a little like fucked up and weird. And I like that. Like, I like how, you know, I said Chinatown and I like that you could be walking down the street of Chinatown and like you walk past a window and they're like roasting Peking duck. And you're like, that's the best smell I've ever. That's like, what is that smell? I want to eat that. And then like you take (laughs) half a step and there's like the worst, like, like homeless diarrhea smell (laughs) with like cat fur. And, and like, I don't, it's not that I like just that a, smell. The be- no, obviously.
1: Yeah, it's just I the like best of both they, worlds coming together. Yeah, Both
2: just, <laughs> they exist together within like yeah. minutes or seconds of each other. You know what I mean? I know I've talked to people who've lived
1: in New York during like the initial onset of COVID, but I'm, I'm way more curious to find out about the protests and things that were happening post George Floyd. Um, what was it like to sort of see the, the, the tide shift there in New York City and specifically in Williamsburg? Was there anything big or was it more like centralized to Manhattan in those areas? So we did not
2: partake in any of the protests, mainly because my wife was like pretty much all the way nine months pregnant at the time. Uh, like by the beginning of June, I think her due date was June 21st or something like that. So we were like a few days out and the risk of, of getting involved with between COVID and like you know, any of us getting hurt or anything like that was like just too much, even though we did want to participate. Um, I have a little balcony here in my apartment. And from there, I'm like right off kind of like a main street in the middle of Williamsburg. So looking off of it, I could see the Williamsburg Bridge in uh, in the sort of distance where a lot of the protests were. And there were several mornings where we woke up to like early, early morning protests Of like huge crowds walking down our street. And so, from our sort of like vantage point, not really, I mean, we didn't, we haven't really left our apartment at all since March. So, like, we walk the dog and go to the grocery store, but like, we don't, we're like, I think I've realized that we're on, we're airing on the like be super safe side of pandemic. Like, same here. Yeah. Whatever. Like, not trying to pass judgment on people who feel like they don't have to be that safe but like we just like don't do anything we just stayed here through the worst of it in new york so i think our thought was just exactly what you said like nobody knows shit about this thing really um but why don't why not err on the side of like being safer because like i don't need to go to a restaurant like my wife and i are in our 30s we're not like trying to we didn't move to New York to like party. So like, I don't need to go, like go out and like be seen and like go to nightclubs or whatever the fuck people are doing. Like I'm, I'm like an introvert anyway. So I'm much happier just like chilling at home and like listening to records and, you know, like uh-huh. doing my own thing. Like it's perfect for guys like us who just of, don't want to be around people. It's <laughs> kind of lucky. Like I'm, I'm kind of fine with it. Like I miss hanging out with friends, but like the things I really miss are like, there's like a Russian bathhouse downtown that like I would go to by myself or with like one other person and we would sit in silence. So like, (laughs) that's the one thing. The second thing is like going to the movies by myself. So it's like,
1: it's like the things I
2: miss going out to do are things that I would do pretty much on my own anyway. But, um, but, but back to your question about the protests, um, we didn't like, physically see anything crazy but i was i you know i have a ton of friends who are like really active in those movements and so i was monitoring these like chats um over like apps like i don't know if you know like the apps like wicker where people were like there are some like whatsapp type apps where they were like these like huge like chats about uh, organizing like where the protests were going to be and start and stuff and they were on un- they were somewhat um like uh, encrypted so th- you know it was like important for people not to like be found out if they were like organizing and stuff like that cuz they didn't want to get you know like beaten up by the police basically and there were a lot of like really fucked up stories in those chats like friends of mine who were like yeah, we went and, like, stood outside the police station, and then they, like, started tear gassing us. Jesus Christ. So we heard a lot of stuff like that. And, you know, it was, like, really fucked up. And, I mean, it was, it definitely blew my mind to found, find out that most of the mainstream media was, like, covering the protests, especially. And I also had friends in, in, in Portland. Hmm who are kind of saying the same things like there wasn't really anybody like there were people starting violent. There was people starting some shit, but they were kind of like outliers who were like troublemakers, but like the focus on this like organized Antifa shit was just like so delusional. Yeah. Um, big time. When you had access to people who were like really actually protesting and even like what I would call like centrists, mainstream media organizations were kind of like giving some like just sort of acknowledging it in a way that like it could maybe be true was like kind of insane to me and I you know all found out about that kind of after a lot of those protests and it's just wild it's wild to be kind of so close to it you know it's
1: weird to think about it too cuz i can i can clearly remember being in philadelphia when the protests started down there i think it was like may 31st and i remember just watching people and there was no there was nothing insane that i saw personally but again it's it's i feel like the level of sort of this it's almost like it's a it's it's amplified in the media, yeah. you know, they take these specific targeted things and are like, "Oh, look, it's Antifa," and you know, "Oh, it's 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 the BLM, it's this this mass organization," and it's like it just doesn't exist that way, right? Like it just doesn't exist. Like I don't have an Antifa card, you know. Like I I know folks who were down there at the 676 protest that got tear gas, and you know, they're live streaming it, and yeah. they're simply walking down the street protesting, and all of a sudden here comes you know the Philly Gestapo ready to to blast them with the tear gas, and it just yeah totally. it seems to be it's and and the I sort to think about it in, in context of the way that the DC sort of insurrection took place and how it seems as though most media organizations are not calling. I think, I feel like the only person that even really called them like domestic terrorists initially was somebody like Jake Tapper, which is weird to say yeah. Jake Tapper would say something like that, but it, it, the way that they portray these two things together, it just feels like, it feels very dishonest, you know, and it feels very, um, totally. it feels very uh, I don't know the word for it, but you said it way better than I did. But I just feel like I, mean, I think take... the word is I think the word is racist. Well, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, I mean that's that's I mean realistically <laughs> you boil it down. I think mean, that's one of the racism. words. It's racism. Yeah, at least. it's still amazing to see how much the media can sort of spin and twist that shit and make it a
2: narrative that doesn't exist to rile people up for no reason. It's amazing to still be surprised by it because you hear about stuff like, you know, how certain things were covered up or like these you know, these like program, like redlining programs back in the day. And so when it happens now, it's like kind of amazing to be surprised because like, it's just historically happened always. And you want to think that we're like beyond it in some way, but yeah, it just, it manifests in like so many different ways. And, you know, I think, you know, you see signs of, of certain progress, but there's just, you know, it's like, The only way to say it, I think, is that racism is just like woven so deeply into our society that people don't see it. You know, people just don't don't see it. And um, you have to unwind so much policy and like way ways of thinking about things and who are these laws really protecting and who are they, you know, you know, who are they, who are they protecting? And like, who are they hurting ultimately? Um, it's fucked up, man. It's so fucked up. <laughs> it just never
1: stopped. I feel like that's the thing. It just it never stops being fucked up. And I, I do find myself often sort of reflecting and being like, why am I still so surprised that this is taking place? You know, why am I still so shocked at this? And, and I think this summer basically yeah. for me was like, I'm not shocked anymore. I'm not right. shocked because this totally. is the reality of where we it's are
2: happening right in front of your eyes.
1: I sort of touched on how we've known each other. Um, We used to hang out at that Sacred Grounds. Uh, where you guys would play. And dude, you were like one of the, like I would say you were probably, and I'm not saying this to puff you up, but like I always felt like your your <laughs> guitar playing was next level, right? Like I always felt uh, like when I watched thanks. you guys play, I always felt like there was something sort of different about the way that you played and the way that your style was. I thought you were on a on a way different level than anybody else that we saw play. Um, and that sort of ended up, one of the reasons why you went to New York was to play music,
2: right? Was thanks, man. I the, mean, yeah. Yeah, it it was the reason I went to New York. I, you know, I got into school here in New York and was as excited about that. But also in the back of my mind, I was like, I'm going to drop out of school and like tell Rolling Stones that I did that when I'm like signed. And, you know, my band's like touring around the world and we're signed to a major label. Like that was in my mind, my plan. It's not really a plan. It's just like a, a lofty idea really. But, you know, I thought I want to be part of this music scene. And at the time there was a huge scene of like kind of indie rock in New York that I wasn't really super excited about as a, as like a, like that wasn't really my genre of choice, but you know, there was like a lot of industry in New York and there was a great music, like a local music scene in New York. And I thought if I was going to be noticed and like get involved as A artist within the greater industry. I needed to be either in LA or New York. I kind of wrote off Chicago and wrote off other cities. Um, You know, obviously like wrote off Philly, even though it's a perfect acceptable place to like go and be in a band and like make, be successful. And if I were giving someone advice, like my former self advice, I would say like, you can just do that anywhere. You don't need to go and be in New York. But what New York did get me was just being just the access to the people in the industry and access to people who were like doing really big, cool, interesting and influential stuff. And so, you know, you start networking with people who are just like really involved in some interesting things. And I think that was the most valuable thing. And right. you know, I eventually kind of like shifted my focus away from being in bands um, and having built that network was so valuable after that, you know?
1: You get into management and how long was it doing that process? How long were you doing sort of the managerial side of things before you got involved with X Ambassadors? Cause I know I remember yeah. seeing that group become really big kind of quick and then realizing Kind of shortly after that, oh shit, Adam's doing that. Like you're a part of that. So how did that all sort of kind of filter through?
2: Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty quick in somewhat, I think relatively quick. So I had gone, as I became more what I would call successful as a musician, I started realizing what it meant to be a musician. To be successful as a musician and what it meant at least for me was touring all the time never being home um it was tr- it was the worst kind of travel and i realized that even though i was in a band i wasn't like writing music a lot of times i was just like playing the same songs kind of over and over again so and, and I was just like, this is actually what the life would be like if I get more into this. And as I become more successful, it's mostly just going to be more of this. It's not going to be less of this and more writing and more of the like creating stuff. It's actually more the playing and the traveling and the like exhausting hours and the hurry up and wait. And so I started thinking about that and thinking like, that doesn't really suit me as like my personality. Like I don't really... I like to play, but like, I don't want to have a life where I'm just like a traveling salesman, basically. That's what it is. It's like, you're a traveling salesman. Um, 40 minutes a day, you're having a blast, but it's like, you get this like adrenaline shot. And then the re- you know, 23 and a half hours is like kind of depressing, honestly. And you're in a different city and you don't, you know, like you're, stressed out and it's like, it's tough living. So I started thinking about that and thinking like music is this thing that I know really well. It's the thing that I know better than anything um, in a lot of ways. And I was just trying to like understand what else I could do to be involved in music because I just felt like that was my expertise. So I didn't want to be on tour did I want to be a producer? You know, I'd done a little bit of production work or an engineer. Like being in a studio didn't really seem like my kind of thing. And so I was kind of thinking, like, okay, the back end is sort of like an agent or a manager or working at a record label or a publishing company um, or some sort of like tertiary music industry job. Does any of that interest me? And I thought, well you know maybe something like that i know that no matter what of which of those things i'm going to pick to do the the only ways that i can figure out how to do it or like become successful at it are one go work in a mailroom at some big company and like slog it out for years or just like two start doing it on your own own the thing And don't wait for someone to give you the opportunity. And that's kind of the way I had always kind of thought about stuff. Not because like I'm this like entrepreneurial guy, just because like I'm not good at being like working within a system. I'm not good at like people being like, you have to like wear a suit to work or like do this or that. I was never good at that. I never thought that I could like, be competitive in like a corporate environment. So I was like, all right, I'm just gonna start like looking around for artists and seeing how I can plug in. And um you know, I knew tons of bands and actually knew ex ambassadors before they were called ex ambassadors and like we played shows together all the time where like nobody was in the room, which is crazy to think about. It, honest um, to God, I can't imagine that when I was point, a guitar I mean, yeah. player, like you know, I was in a band and they were just like the next band on the bill and we'd watch them and we were like, damn, they're good. And, you know, they'd be like in the audience, like we'd hang out afterwards and drink like PBRs and nobody would be at the shows, you know, like a couple people maybe like kind of lukewarm about it. And it was just like, yeah, it was just, they were just like another band in in Brooklyn, like trying to, trying to make it. And um, so anyway, so I was just kind of looking around to see how I could kind of plug in and I was at a show where there were probably, you know, 10 people in the audience of this band called Skies. And Skies were, it was like their third show and all the members of the band were in other like professional bands for major label artists. And they were all off tour at the time and they had written a few songs of material and played it was you know like a little local new york super group type of a thing like all the players were just astoundingly good and saw them play this show they probably like had one rehearsal beforehand it was their first show there was maybe 10 people in the room and i was just like sitting there with my mouth open like holy fuck, this band is good uh they're so good and the thought that couldn't like i couldn't get out of my head was I could manage them. I could bring like 20 more people to this show. Like I know by, by enthusiasm, I could convince 20, maybe 30 people to come to this show and check this band out. Like they're good, you know, like selling something that is good is kind of easy. Like if you're selling a Absolutely. piece of shit, Absolutely. you know, it's not, it's hard, but you know, it's like, it's easy to sell something that's like, you know, like kind of, I don't know, guaranteed, guaranteed right. quality. So I was like, I think I could do this. Like, I think I know at least like four steps ahead of what needs to happen here. I've been in enough bands where there were managers and like, they barely did a good job. And I think I could at least do a barely good job. And so I <laughs> just I the like, bare approach, minimum. yeah, just enough. <laughs> yeah. Like I think I could, I could probably do like as good as the worst manager I've had you know, maybe a little bit better, but like, I wasn't like giving myself much credit at the time. And so I approached the band and like, turns out they knew even less about how to be successful than I did. And I was like, Hey, do you guys want to let me manage you? I will do it for free. And you only have to pay me if we actually make money for you. And they were like, yeah, okay, cool. That sounds good like they didn't know anything and you know didn't take it seriously and so i started with this one band and um you know kind of picked up a few other clients along the way but like was able to leverage certain things and their amazing music to get them some opportunities and that um was sort of around the time of hype machine and we had some like hype machine success for what some of their music. And then suddenly I had like th- all these like cool record labels were reaching out to them, asking what they were up to. Turns out they weren't really serious, but like, as I learned later in, in my career, you know, labels just want to be plugged in just in case they um, have to like tell their boss that like, Oh, I knew about that band. Like I, I was the first one to reach out. So like, it's a little bit of, like, covering their asses a little bit, but I was super psyched. Um, and so, you know, like, we definitely made some things happen with them. We, we, like, I got them some pretty big opportunities and was able to, like, help them and some other bands kind of, like, um, build some momentum within the scene. So, like, people started just being aware of what I was doing and, like, taking me seriously somewhat. And mind you, like, I'm not business savvy at the time. Like, I'm not savvy... I just am a super fan. I'm just, I just love music. I don't know shit about anything. I don't know anything about the music industry. I don't know fucking anything, dude. So, you know, I, um, I'm just going on passion. So I ended up joining two other guys who had kind of combined their roster and, it was uh, the one guy had like really successful band called Rara Riot. And the other guy had this band that had like just signed to Glass Note Records called Panama Wedding. And there were some other groups, including X Ambassadors, but like they weren't, like they had maybe just signed to Interscope, but like they weren't, like nobody at the label was like taking them seriously yet. And so they were just like one of those, like we just got signed and we're kind of at the bottom of the barrel sort of, um, which happens a lot, like bands get signed to major labels and then the label doesn't know what to do with them. And then nothing happens. Um, so, but this other guy, uh, was a buddy of mine and he was like, why don't you come? We have a lot of artists. We have like nine artists. There were two of them. And he was like, why don't you come and like help us? And we can't really like pay you, but like, there's some big things on the, on the table. And within, you know, I'd say like four, that was probably like eight, nine months into like really seriously managing artists on my own. um, I kind of joined up with these guys. And then I would say like a few months after that, these major opportunities kind of like all collated for X ambassadors Um, and that turned into just craziness because you know, essentially, they had gotten this major sync for a Beats by Dre commercial in the World Cup that was like a 15 minute commercial with like helicopter shots over Rio. And like LeBron James and like Serena Williams were in like this commercial. Holy shit, dude! Like the like the top of the top. (laughs) It was like like just it was crazy. It was like Neymar and like all the like soccer stars and like all of our like sport American sports stars were like on this commercial where they were like all putting on their headphones and it was a epic, basically a commercial for the band song Jungle. And so we thought, man, this is really gonna like take the band, like we thought, okay, this was gonna mean that like Jungle was gonna go to the radio. It ended up not doing that. And so the band was sort of like still at the same level, kind of still playing like pretty small rooms. And then they wrote this song called Renegades. And I won't go into like the story with like how that song got written um, or like why it fits so well for this car commercial but basically it was like synced perfectly for this car commercial and they the car commercial the car company um fiat chrysler wanted originally to have like different genre songs all about their new car the jeep renegade so they wanted like at the time when it was like 2014 they were like we want a reggaeton song we want a country song we want a hip-hop song and like we'll use each of those songs to di- for different markets it's like the most like marketing dumb agency bullshit, bullshit idea.
1: yeah
2: it's like and, marketing
1: marketing like 99 cool. like it's not even
2: that good yeah right it's a, yeah. this is such a stupid idea like dumb, <laughs> dumb idea but like all someone could think of but they liked X ambassador's Song so much that they completely transformed their marketing campaign. I think, like, the label put some some muscle into that to make that happen. And they um, changed the creative so that the band was, like, part of the commercial. And so the it, for people that don't know, the band is driving the car, and the whole premise of the commercial is, like, the band is, like, touring around in their Jeep Renegade, like, trying to make it. and And really, like... This, this echoed the story of the band, which was like a band that moved from Ithaca, New York to New York City to like try to make it and like be part of this indie scene and they found that they were like, they didn't really fit into the scene and they were very much like doing things their own way and they didn't really like fit and the Renegade was really all like the, the sort of creative was all about like paving your own way and like doing your own thing. So from sort of a brand perspective there was such great synergy between like telling this band's story of who the band is and selling a car. So I think looking back at it, I can very much make sense of like why they exploded the way they did. And so that momentum, um, we like changed our plan, pushed the album out very quickly, pushed renegades to alternative radio. And it became like the fastest, I think it was like the top like the longest running top alternative song since 1997's Fastball The Way. Wow, Um, that's impressive, man. Yeah, I mean, it (laughs) was impressive. But like, we didn't even know really what that meant. But, you know, it was like (laughs) the song came out in June and it was number one on alternative radio, like through the summer all the way through the fall. I can't remember exactly like how many weeks it was, but that propelled the band into like, crazy success especially with touring and so we had this like a aggressive touring strategy where like the bands were playing clubs and like as soon as we like sold out a club we were like booking the bigger venue in that in that um in that city for like three months and we were just like doing this like leapfrog tours that lasted for from basically until 2017 we toured from 2015. Pretty much non-stop to 2017. Wow. Like with almost no breaks. Um, that's insane. That it was like, crazy. That's, yeah. It was also for me like a huge learning experience because again, first of all, nobody knew what they were doing. Like, ex- <laughs> I mean, the label maybe. But like. Right. And I, But they're not going to tell you what to do. They'll be like, yeah, go ahead, figure it out. Yeah. But also like every situation is different. And so I also think maybe in the music industry, if anybody says they know what they're doing, they're full of shit. But we were also, like, we had never experienced anything like this before. The band didn't. The other manager who, like, was the, like, primary manager of the band, he didn't. I didn't. Like, nobody knew anything that was going on. So we were just, like, learning as we went and, like, certainly making a lot of mistakes. You know, we we had to, like, figure out, like, okay, how many days of sold-out shows in a row are too many days? Like, can we book four shows in a row if, like, the band gets like to do three encores every single night, like that kind of thing where we were like, okay, we need a break in between. We need, if we're going to do four shows, we need two days off. If we need three shows, we need one day off. Like, here's how we have to like um, communicate information. Like this is the chain of um, communication between like us and the label and us and the agency. And like, so we are figuring out this like infrastructure of like, how do we, Keep the engine of this band's business going as they build. And yeah, the band delivered. They're fucking amazing yeah. live. And every show, we just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was crazy.
1: Now, when you get so, so Renegades comes out, how soon after? Because I feel like for me, when I felt like they really landed, when I felt like I, like I felt like they had sort of had that crossover. And I think I actually reached out to you about this when I, got the copy of the Marshall Mathers LP too. And I realized that they were on a record (laughs) with Eminem and I'm like, Holy shit. Like, like they're on wicked ways. And now I sort of know like, you know, the context behind how they ended up on the record. And, you know, like uh, it's, it's just like that for me was like, Holy shit. Like they've, they've made it like they've officially crossed over into that next level. I mean, that must've been, sort of like just, that must have been just shocking for you to be like, here I am helping this band and now all of a sudden we're the biggest fucking band in the world, you know, it's just, it's unbelievable. I just, how quickly there something some, like that
2: happens. I mean, totally. I think also the more you work in the industry, you just realize like how somewhat accessible your like favorite artists of all times are and like almost to a fault because a lot of them you just don't want to meet um like think about right just like i can about, share
1: i can share at least one story with you with an artist i, know that you I met
0: you
2: told me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, he was a um, fucking yeah. dick yeah well i'll tell you that's like not uncommon <laughs> yeah and i've heard it just ruins it just ruins everything and like so the magic of like being a fan when you're a kid definitely goes away when you're working in the business because i mean look eminem is like one of the best rappers ever And that was amazing. But the way it happened was like Sam, the singer was like sending ideas to his producer. I don't even know if he knew that the producer sent those ideas to Eminem. And then it ended up on the record like two years later. And like, it was basically like an email that we got that was like, hey, can you confirm the writing splits for Wicked Ways? It come like it's coming out tomorrow. We're like, for what? (laughs) I'm sorry. What was that again? And They're like, Wicked Ways. They're like, What is Wicked Ways? We don't even know what that is. And then like we had, then it was like a matter of like making a call and be like, you know, calling the label and being like, What is Wicked Ways? And they're like, Oh, okay. Well, this is happening. And and the thing is like when you're an artist that big, like if you're a Beyonce or a Eminem or a Drake. You just like, you just take. You don't right. really. There isn't as formal where you like ask if you could do if you could use this because you're sort of like assuming, and correctly assuming that anybody wants to be part of your shit. So like, if you hear any right. stories about like when Beyonce's record came out and there were like, you know, like Kevin Garrett uh, has like some sample on it and he was just like. Or James Blake's another great example of that. Like James Blake, big artist in his own right. But like Beyonce just like took something that he submitted or sampled it. Like nobody asked James Blake and he was just like, Best day of my life. Like nobody <laughs> fucking asked my permission. Best day of my but life. But I'm cool with it. And it's but like, like
1: that's how that's how Justin Vernon ended up on kamikaze. That um well, fall. Right, that was a huge right. fucking deal. But like uh, with the sort of the yeah. context of what he was saying to um Tyler the Creator, but that's same when you told me that, when you same told thing. me the story about ex-ambassadors, and then I heard the story behind it, I was like, Oh, that's that's exact I know exactly how this works. And it's just fascinating. So that shit that, so yeah.
2: that shit kind of happens and you know it's it's uh but also like what we were saying before about like meeting these people in the industry that you felt like were largely inaccessible and like larger than life. They're just like dudes. They're just dudes. Some of them are crazy talented. And, you know, for me, like one of those big moments, you know, you're probably a bigger Eminem fan than I ever was, even though I think as an artist, he's unbelievable, but I never like fanned out on Eminem when I was a kid. Like I don't have that like nostalgia factor that's like deep in the gut like I wouldn't know what to say to him if I met him live or in person, that, but that
1: would definitely still be me though. Just for the record, I totally. would still like no, you know, no, no, Troy, I, dude, Troy right. Barnes, Lavar Burton, the whole you know, just wide-eyed yeah. like holy shit, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, like for me, that Lavar Burton person was Tom Morello, and we also oh, wow. did. damn so we also did a record with Tom Morello that ended up. I think we just put it out as a single. I'm trying to remember. It, he at a certain point, like Tom had a solo project and like the record was gonna maybe be on that solo project. I honestly don't I haven't really been keeping track of what happened to that. But like they started collaborating. I don't even remember like how that happened, but as soon as I heard they were working together, I was like, Oh no, I'm gonna meet Tom Rello. What do I say? What do I do? Uh this is gonna be hard. What the fuck? And he's actually like <laughs> just to do. Right. Like I met him and he's like, I didn't, I definitely didn't know what to say. And like, just like mouth vomited, (laughs) Uh, but he was still just a dude and he was super cool. Really nice. Obviously crazy, crazily talented. He's like very, he's really smart, but he's just a dude and he's just a dude who's like, yeah, I gotta go pick up my mom. And like, you know, like my kids are doing this and like he's got, you know, he like belongs in like a he like plays D&D with like some friends and like drives like kind of a shitty car and like he's just a normal dude and like, you know, gets on the phone with his manager and he's like stressed out and he like is like angry about stuff that's like stupid like he just
1: just literally lives like the rest of us do it's just it's it's i feel like and i feel like you're right like i feel like somebody else that i would probably mark out for hard is like a bruce springsteen right like i've just grown up listening to springsteen and you like you don't imagine it like you know springsteen's got to go to the grocery store to get like you know vegetables or like you know maybe he's got to take his car to the shop like and he's probably like freaking out like the rest of us and i feel like you know i it's just it's fascinating to think about even eminem like uh you know, he seems sort of this mysterious, like super kind of reclusive guy. And the fact that you guys were able to just like that, I mean, it's just it's I guess music just is it that that world is just way different than I imagine it being. And I just I uh, I'm always sort of perpetually fascinated by how these things sort of come together. But um, I know that you've been a fan of Tom Morello for a really long time. So that must have been like for you. Was that sort of the moment where you guys are like, yep, we're
2: we're here. Like we're we've we've completely made it now. I mean, for me, it was the moment where I was like, we've done everything that I ever wanted to do. Like, I'm on set for a music video shoot where my band is playing and Tom Morello is on stage and, like, they're playing and they're, like, playing back and forth, feeding off of each other. And then someone would yell, cut. And Tom Morello's like, hey, uh, is my strap too high? Like, should I lower... (laughs) Is it doesn't it look weird on camera let me let me see that one uh let me see that shot back like i think my strap's a little too high like how did it look when i went like stuck my hand up and like you know, like did a little split like was that cool he was like let me just make sure that looked okay yeah okay i'm gonna just turn a little bit because i want you to kind of see my hand a little bit better and it was just like yeah it was totally a moment where i was like whoa first of all this is fucking surreal i can't believe this is happening and also, um, we've done everything. We've done all the things that I think I, I wanted to do. I can't even imagine. And I, can't, I just saw the movie Soul. I don't know if you've seen it, the Pixar film. Great flick, yeah. I just Kids finished it. it. And that is like one of the most like profoundly accurate takes on like following your passion that I've ever felt or seen. And honestly, like the feeling of making it you're just like i don't feel any different and that's it that's like like just there you've yeah it's just like and then you just just like wake up the next day and then you're like okay tom is just regular dude i guess i'm gonna go to work you know like it's not it's just it just is a job in a way and there are you know we sold out red rocks in in the rain and people were like singing all the words like that was fucking crazy and you're just like this is surreal and then you just wake up the next day and you just like keep going to work, you know, it's just a job so at the wild. end of the day. So it's not what I thought it would be in that way. Like I thought it would be more grandiose or something, but it ended up being not in a bad way, but just, it's just a job kind of like anything else at the end of the day, you know? And it's like, yeah, you could flow doing that or flow doing any other job in a way. <laughs>
1: Foundation Radio is brought to you today by The Dugout. The Dugout specializes in one-of-a-kind vintage and distressed clothing at an affordable price. One of my favorite t-shirts in my entourage right now is a Dudley Boys distressed vintage t-shirt from the late 90s and the greatest time in wrestling and the greatest tag team of all time. I now own one of their shirts. Also, I have this really rad Prince and the Revolution t-shirt from Purple Rain. All of the distressing work that they do is done by hand, so you know you're getting a quality product at an affordable price. And the great news is is that domestic shipping is always free within the United States. And right now, if you go onto their Etsy shop and use promo code FOUNDATION, you'll get 15% off of your entire purchase. That's right, 15% off your entire purchase. So you get an even better deal on an already affordable piece of amazing clothing. So go ahead and give them a follow right now at The Dugout Brand on Instagram. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. And don't forget, if you go to their Etsy shop right now and use promo code FOUNDATION at checkout, you'll get 15% off of your entire purchase. The Dugout, customized and vintage apparel. So now that sort of transitions you to joining another larger team, and that's where you ended up working. Now, did you work directly with John Legend, or did you work part of that that world? Just yeah. So of that we group? joined
2: this like we we kind of started like a management collective with another company, and that company um, was was sort of like managing John's production company and his career. And so we didn't really like touch that project, but we did collaborate on a couple of artists with them and the idea was like, we were gonna build this like, basically like like a management collective. And there were some major, like, it was very exciting at first, but there were ultimately some major problems um, that arose. And before we had joined in the company, I was kind of already thinking like, there's no way for me to grow without signing more bands. And I don't have time to sign more bands. So like, I'm just making these bets and I can only make so many bets at once. Um, And the amount of time that each bet costs is like at least three years. Like you invest three years into a band before you know anything. Um, And so I was like, this is not a good, like my odds are not good when you're a manager. Like in terms of just my own success. Um, And I was just like, how do we, you know, like in order for us to like, I mean, we're still, we were still like four people at that point. Like we were not a big company managing this like major artist, but we were like, I was just trying to think like how many of those artists, like how many ex ambassadors would we need to like be growing this company really like to the point of like serious growth where we, we were like, Really making ends meet for ourselves and like having careers instead of just like living from paycheck to paycheck, basically. And I was like, maybe seven, eight ex ambassadors. And I was like, how is that even possible? Like, I don't right. even know how that would be possible. And so I was like, I need to like rethink this because you're invested in so much emotionally as a manager. And You know the artist is sort of the product but the artist also like has a major say over you know and under and they should over like how their career should be steered and in which direction and sometimes their ideas are like not the right ideas like straight up sometimes they make mistakes because they're too close to it and they're making decisions based on their own fear insecurity um you know, a huge list of things that make you make impulse decisions and you ended up and you end up detouring from like success for four or five, six years. And so I was like, I need to kind of move away from working so closely with artists. And I started thinking the way that um, like the way to sort of build success in the music industry is like having some ownership over the IP, some like, rights to the music or the publishing. So either the records or the publishing. Um, so I was like, I really think the new model is going to be managers that also own their artist publishing or manage the rights to the publishing in some capacity and maybe also the records. So I found this company that was doing that and it was this company called Locomotion and they were the publisher record label and management for this artist, Youngblood. Um, Who's like a massive artist now.
1: Um, I was going to say I'm familiar with them. My uh, my trainer also trains Dan Reynolds from Imagine Dragons. And that's how I first learned about Youngblood was the collaboration oh, that they did together. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, he's like, you know, he's huge. He's a huge artist. And they had this small label has complete control of everything. And they've like licensed his music to major labels. But like the way they built it was really smart and innovative. But I also kind of hit a wall with that company, too, because of all kinds of various things. And at the time, I was sort of like realizing that there was this other major force in the music industry that was keeping my artists from being successful. And that was the paradigm of technology was changing so quickly. And within the time I had been managing artists, we went from Okay, now we have to get a song on Hype Machine. Okay, now, or first we need song on blogs. Okay, now we have to be number one on Hype Machine. Okay, now we're submitting playlists on Spotify. Okay, we can do that. We have this special like pitching tool that we could do that through Spotify. Okay, now the record labels have like bought major majority shares, stakeholders in the in spotify and now only the major labels can submit songs to spotify okay now they've like shaken up the team at spotify and like re you know like kind of like reposition the whole company to like now accept submissions for playlists again okay now TikTok is like where songs are getting discovered and so i kept like i just i started noticing that like There were all these like technology paradigm shifts within the business and that it was actually affecting artists' ability to become successful, sometimes hindering it and sometimes helping it. And I just realized like actually nothing is more impactful than creating tools for artists because that's really the thing that's making or breaking careers for not just like Uh, the amount of artists that I can have the capacity to manage, which let's say is nine or the amount of artists I could have the capacity to like own the publishing of, which is like not that many, unless you have a lot of money, which could be, let's say 30, you know, or 50 or something like that. Um, But thousands of artists are affected by technology. So I just kept thinking about that in terms of impact. And I was like, well, How do you get into, like, what is the job that decides what artists need to be built? Like, what kind of tools an artist needs to have built in order for them to, like, make an impact and build a career? And so I discovered this field called product management, which is, like, sort of comes from a software company. Um, But what's happened is, like, every company has sort of have to become a software company these days. Um, Even if you're not selling software, you have some software that is helping you do a better job at what you're doing, whether that means you're interacting with social media or you're building sort of internal tools to help do a number of things. Every company is like expected to have software or apps or some sort of like tool that is best in class. So that if you're hiring a 23 year old, they know how to use it as well as they can like figure out how to use like Instagram or TikTok app kind of thing. So I was like, okay, I think that's more interesting to me. And I kind of like dove into, to like this field of study and started doing that, you know, like for people and started kind of like freelance doing it. Um, wherever I could just trying to help people like leverage technology to build their creative careers and um, helping technology companies understand what artists need. And um, that kind of like snowballed over the over COVID honestly. Um, Right. Cause I know you, you got laid off
1: around the time COVID kicked off, right? Like you, yeah. So
2: starting and then I kind of had this plan to leave locomotion, but I was like, actually, I'm not going to leave until I have something figured out that's like consistent. And then I got laid off in like May, I think it was. And I was like, okay, well that kind of sucks, but also now it's an opportunity for me to kind of dive into this thing. And so I spent the next several months just kind of like trying to understand, okay, like What do artists need? And what like what is the sort of like what is the landscape of what's happening tech wise for artists? And how does it, how do artists really use the use those things to help them build their careers? And I eventually met someone at United Talent Agency and they were like very much in sync with this kind of thinking. And they were like, not only do we need someone who's focused on what to build and like this like product mentality that I had developed, but also we need someone who knows what agents are all about. They know who knows like the persona of an agent, what an agent needs and like what helps them be more successful. And I was like, I know agents really well. I've worked with a lot of your agents in the music department. And one of them was ex ambassadors agent. So, and also another one of them is, paradigms or another one of them was Youngblood's agent. So I knew these agents, not only did I know their personality, their personas, but I knew, I knew them like personally Um, was, you know, friend I'm friends with several of them. And so I ended up joining this team just like about a month ago. And um, yeah, it's like this brand new crazy thing that is totally not where I thought I would be Um, much more tech focused than I've ever been. Really. Um, Tech's always been like part of my life, but not to this extent.
1: Well, I feel like it's kind of like what you're talking about with the the tech and and things like that. I've always kind of heard that the people who are the most successful are the ones that are following the trends, right? I mean, you have all these cats at that, you know, a bunch of people will discover it on even SoundCloud and they know how to utilize those sort of uh, ideas and now TikTok and everything else. But having that the, the, the best of those both worlds together, um, I feel like puts you at a, at a very serious advantage to be the one that sort of kicks this off. Uh, But I, I guess sort of going back to what you're saying about IP, what would you say is a bigger Achilles heel now for artists? Because I know like one of my favorite things to watch when I talk to people about music is the Joe Budden Little Yachty interview where Joe Budden's like asking him directly, do you have a 360 deal? And he can't answer it, you know, and it's like that to me is like, you know, when you hear somebody like Joe Budden, I mean, I don't know what you I would love to know your thoughts on that uh, sort of as as a a part B to this question. But like, what do you think is a bigger Achilles for artists becoming successful? Is it not retaining and owning the rights to their intellectual property uh, or having someone in their camp own it or sort of this sort of technology, uh, you know, deficiency what do you think is 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 more harmful to them long term
2: well okay there are a lot of things i think that for one creating um for artists and like releasing music as an artist has become largely democratized so that more artists are able to exist and release music than ever before, by far, like by leaps and bounds. So just by the amount, just by like pure, you know, the amount of attention that the world can spare on any given day, only so many artists are going to be successful. So there are more artists that are unsuccessful now than ever before. And next year, there'll be even more unsuccessful artists than ever before, by far, because more and more artists will um, be able to do anything. So just at those staggering numbers, there will just be a smaller percentage that can make it every single year. But I think there is opportunity for more artists to be successful, as we figure out channels where people can access them and for ways for artists to be successful. So like, for example, like virtual concerts or TikTok is like an amazing way to share culture. And so that is like able to give artists some success that they haven't necessarily been able to access before. So like tools like that are amazing. So that's sort of one thing, like there just can't be that many successful artists, no matter what, just because we just don't have the time as the, as humanity to to, like make them all successful.
1: As technology advances, you're going to have, I've, I've seen that even just with, in the circles that I run with, with music, it's, it's, there's uh, almost an overflow of of artists and, and creators and content that's out there. It's almost like I can think about back in the day, like when you would hear a hip hop record. I mean, imagine somebody like Biggie Smalls or Nas or any of these guys that came up in the '90s. They would all be struggling for air. For every one Kendrick Lamar you have, or every one Nas you have, a hundred people you have to sift through first before you get there. And it feels like it's almost like an overload in a lot of ways. And yeah, I, it, it's you're right. Like I feel like more people are failing, for lack of a better word, to get that airtime uh, than we ever have before.
2: That's sort of another way of saying what I was saying about technology. You know, I said the other day, I said, technology wags the dog of the music industry. And I think the way people often talk about that is like by saying stuff like if Led Zeppelin was around today, like would they be successful? And I think what people are saying is like, they wouldn't be recognized. And to me, that's technology. That's a product of technology. And the effect that technology had was that people are used to a certain thing and they're also used to like so many artists existing at once versus like when an artist like Led Zeppelin came out, they were sort of the only ones doing what they were doing. And like, frankly, they were stealing blues riffs. So like, that's a whole other story. Right. Let's be honest. would (laughs) Would that be acceptable in 2020 or 2021? I don't know. So, so that's sort of one thing I think. The other thing is that the music industry, the like infrastructure to the music industry and like the business model of the music industry just is shit for artists. And the other sort of side of that coin is that artists are um, predisposed to believing that like they should get acceptance from the music industry. Like they need acceptance. And the artists that have like, like when you talk about artists like Russ or artists like, um, like have just kind of like paved their own way, like for real, um, those are artists that didn't give a fuck about being accepted. And I think a lot of artists may never admit it, but I think you want to be like accepted. You want to, you want your art to be unique and you also want it to like fit in. And so there's this dichotomy of those two things that I think is just inherent in a lot of artists who like want to do this thing in a different way, in their own way, but they also like want the industry to just accept them and love them. It's some like Freudian shit. Honestly, I like can't get too deep into it because I just don't know, but like, right. I think it's, I don't think a lot of artists are thinking about money. I think they're thinking about acceptance. And I think that, is a mindset shift that artists should make because when you stop thinking about that it frees you to to make some of the right decisions so like when a label comes around and you're a brand spanking new artist and they give you like a really small record label and it's like part of a 360 deal and they own part of your touring and they own all this stuff like your merchandising rights and all this stuff don't sign that deal just don't do it you don't need the acceptance it's not Part, it's not going to be helping in the larger plan of building a career. Um, and I think what artists need to do is like leverage, leverage the democratized tools that they have at their disposal, like TikTok, like the creative, creator tools, like splice, like all of these things that will help art, like making videos, you could do it cheaply. Like any artist can like do cool shit. So long as they are iterating their craft and getting better. That's like another thing that's important is like, you have to be great. That's like table stakes is greatness. So, you know, part of that is like paving your own way. And so if you're great and you believe you're great and you're going to like keep improving like a Kendrick, don't sign, build leverage because eventually you'll need the industry. You'll need them for radio you'll need them for bigger sponsorship opportunities. You'll need them to like move some bigger pieces around for you. But if you're a, if you're a band and you're like and there's a label and you're going to sign a deal that's like 120 grand or something like that advance, don't fucking do it. Don't fucking do it because and 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 you don't have a fan base and you think like <sighs> Signing is going to like help you get a, like, if you don't have a, that's really what it is. If you don't have people coming to your shows and you're and a major label wants to sign you, that basically means that they're just going to own you. Don't do it. And I think artists think like they're taking a risk in a way. Like, I think they do know that instinctually that like it's risky to do that, but it's like more than that. It's more than risky. And It's just not worth it. Technology will help artists leverage their careers. And if they're lucky, they get to a point where they can sign a really good deal where they maintain control. Um, But if you're thinking about signing to a label and you don't have a fan base, then you need to turn towards technology. That's the thing. Like technology has now made it so that you could, if you're the right artist and you're doing the right things and you have the right like head on your shoulders, um, you can leverage success. But, and, and this, is, this is a new thing that like you could never do before. Artists could not do this without a record label before. It very rarely happened. But now it's like artists can really do that. You can connect with fans on socials. You can build your own content for pennies. You can really build a career without the major label system. And I think what's happening is like the effects of the fall of the CD medium that like turned into free downloads and the industry being in disarray, we're still feeling that those effects. So when you talk about the importance of technology in the industry, that moment in nineteen ninety nine or whatever it was, is still reverberating through the industry and is still affecting stuff. And so, so like, crazy,
1: man. That's so crazy to think about something that felt felt like a blip and you feel like these companies are large enough to sort of kind of be on board with that by now or are not. That is that is truly unusual to hear.
2: I mean it's 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 the case, you know, the and honestly um the labels are not They're too big to move quickly in the direction of like really changing the way that they do things. And they're making money. And I think part of the reason they're making money is because artists still think that they need record labels. And people still want to sign to a label because it's like a good look. One of the things that I really admire about hip hop artists is that there's a culture of being independent that rock artists don't have And I think it comes from like You know back in the day The like indie label Was like a scene And so you would sign to a label Where like you were affiliated with other artists That's a very like indie rock thing Or just like punk rock thing And hip hop It's not that hip hop didn't have that But they had less of that And often hip hop artists were just taken advantage of And they're still taken advantage of Absolutely um, absolutely. But it is. But I think because, um, you know, like black artists have had to be very crafty because the industry was like taking advantage of them. They've become like amazing entrepreneurs and figured out like, fuck, kind of like, fuck the industry. We got to do our own thing. And so it's created this like awesome culture of like, Let's build our own, like, think about, like, Odd Future is a great example. Like, don't sign to a label. Build your own collective. That's what people should be doing. You know, like, the newer example of that is, like, you know, maybe ASAP Mob, or maybe, like, I'm trying to think of, like, what else, like, YBN, like that's the other... only other,
1: that's someone one that's, that's coming to mind too, is uh, ASAP Bob, I think was the one that you were thinking now, would the roots be a part of that too? Cause I feel like they're totally. that, that style totally. was, they were like the originators of that almost.
2: I mean, the roots did this thing when they were trying to figure out how they, how to like build, I don't know if this was after they got dropped from the major label or before, but like at a certain point they started throwing these like Sunday dinners in Philly and they'd like hold jam sessions and they had like a chef friend cook for all these people and they like built a community. That's what artists need to be doing. Like that is going to, that is going to pave the way for success. Like you want to be part of something bigger. Don't do anything to get a record deal. Don't do it. And the problem is like, honestly, for me, I've had conversations with artists where like I try to talk them out of getting like doing this shit and like get like selling their soul. And they just don't fucking listen. (laughs) 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 They just don't fucking listen As I saw all those things, I thought to myself, how can I help any of this stuff? Do I just have to live with this stuff? Like I'm going to bet on a few artists and like, they're all going to have to deal with this bullshit. Like you kind of, you know, you got to deal with it. But I just realized that like the key to artists taking control of their own career is like better technology. How do we connect fans? How do we build culture? So I thought I needed to get into that. I need to like help artists build culture with technology. And that's really what my focus has been.
1: Do you feel like if reading your post that you put up on Instagram, I feels like there's this fulfillment that comes from that with you. Do you Do you feel fulfilled now in this sort of new journey, this new enterprise? Do you feel like it's bringing you the completion that you were looking for? In Not just in your music, but I mean, do you feel, I mean, I I know you're just starting, but like, I feel like, I feel like you just, it's this culmination almost. And you're like, yeah, this is, this is it.
2: I mean, look, I think that I'm not someone who ever feels like I'm at the end of a journey. I think I just love to live in the place where I feel like I'm at the beginning of a journey. I love to be in that place where I'm like, absorbing information and like, trying to figure out how much of my gut I should trust and how much I should be listening and learning and absorbing. Um, And when I started managing, it was like this, I'm having like a lot of flashbacks from like when I started managing artists, because like I was telling you, I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew I loved music and I just let that passion guide what I was doing. And so there's sort of like inst- for this job now, you know, it's a, I'm a month into this job. Um, there's instinctually some things that I know how to do, and then there's other things that I'm like, yo, I am out of my depths on some of this stuff. So you know, it's about learning and paying attention. And I think this opportunity will lead to the next opportunity. Um, I right now I feel like technology is so important and i don't even i've like just scratched the surface of understanding that importance um, and i don't know where it's going to lead really you know i think that's kind of for me that's the exciting thing and i think being out of my depths a little bit is like exciting for me i think ultimately that the business is changing music industry is changing you know covid has like unearthed virtual concerts can be a real thing, but at the same time will not replace live shows. People are still going to want to go and see shows live, but there's, there has like created this whole other thing, this whole other paradigm that is going to be a really interesting, uh, you know, part of the industry for the next several years to watch grow. Like I was concerts just say, within would- video games like I don't know it's if you've crazy. been hearing about like, you know, like Marshmallow performing in the Roblox world, and like now people paying, to- yeah, like h- these huge concerts are like Dua Lipa's like play these virtual concerts that were like huge, My and shit. so. That's crazy. It's wild. It's
1: it is cool to see the industry, the media industry, sort of explode with you know having to adapt to COVID again. I ne- I mean, I know that like my job can literally be done from the comfort of my apartment. I there's ninety five percent of the functions that I do can be done from home, and I feel mm-hmm. like, I feel like COVID in a lot of ways is sort of helping push the industry towards this sort of technological boom. And it sounds like they're already kind of there. So the, 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 the the only way for you now at this point is up is just to continue to stay on top, keep your thumb on the, you know, on the heartbeat of whatever's coming next and see how you can utilize that and maximize it.
2: I mean, yeah, that's, that's a good way of thinking about it. I think, Um, you know, it's, I, I never thought I would be in this place. Technology is always been a big part of my life. And I think when you get into music, technology is always like a big part of that. Um, Especially if you're like into recording your own music, producing your own music, you're using technology in some capacity. And so I never really thought of it as like a thing that I wanted to have as part of my job. I was very idealistic going into, you know, moving to New York. And I was like, I want to be a musician. And, you know, like, Honestly, I can't believe I'm going to bring up Soul again, but like that movie's totally <laughs> Dude, It's a great movie. It's a great flick. It's a great flick and it spoke to my experience in like a very personal way because I felt like I had to play and I sacrificed in a way like sacrifice some happiness. Um and I also realized along the way that like you can flow doing a lot of things. It doesn't have to be playing guitar. I love playing guitar, but like you can get that feeling of flow building products for artists. You can feel that feeling of flow managing artists. You can feel it doing anything. And it's like, it's flow state exists for like any practice. So once I realized that it freed me up a little bit to be like well like what's really interesting like what am i interested in like exploring if i don't have to like tell myself that i was meant to play guitar and i think that's like kind of a scary thing for musicians like i know for myself at the very least like the thought of of like giving up i didn't like that thought um you know but i realized like so much of what I do is coming from this like same wellspring of creativity. And like, you know, again, like that flow state can exist doing anything. So, and again, like once I really felt that was true, it freed me up to just like explore. And that's how I ended up kind of in this weird place where I'm like building tech tools for artists. And, you know, it seems such a departure from, like, being in a fucking rock band. But it's kind of not, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Adam, I really just want to say thank you for stopping
1: by the show today to chat with me about this new endeavor. And I really hope it's a successful... As I think it's going to be, because I feel like everything you've done so far has been successful, and I'm I'm really stoked for you to see this kind of take take shape and and take off. And I'm 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 really looking forward to following your journey. So, um, I just want to say thank you for for stopping by, man. Uh, I yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, my it.
2: pleasure. Pre- it's great to catch up, and uh, you know, I don't always get to articulate some of these things, so it's interesting bouncing some of it off of you. And uh, yeah, catching up was great. And absolutely. Uh,
1: it's a pleasure man. I I can't believe we've known each other this long already. It feels like yesterday. Feels like
2: it feels, <laughs> like it feels a, weird to know anybody that long, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was so nice to get together with you guys at Sam's wedding like I just felt like old times, you know, like yeah, it was just was it fun. was just wonderful. So, uh thank you so much again. I really appreciate it, man.
2: My pleasure.
0: Foundation Radio is hosted, recorded, and executive produced by Adam Barnard. The show is also produced by Sam Craps. Special thanks to Greg Mead, Joe Keen, Jeff Quinn, and Dr. Ruth Alme. Our intro and outro music is produced by Dumb Ugly. Find this episode and our full archive at foundationradio.net. Follow us on Instagram at foundation underscore radio. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your favorite podcasts. This has been a Foundation Radio production. Butts Carlton, Proprietor.